you're listening to tribal drum rhythms from the United Arab Emirates. A group of drummers dressed in long white robes or kanduras walk across the stage. They're playing the traditional calls together. And the people they're calling together are the biggest players in climate change in the world. This is the opening performance for the annual United Nations Conference on Climate Change, or COP28 for short. This year, it was held in Dubai. The conference is massive. Tens of thousands of people in one place for two weeks. Their goal? How do we take action as a planet on climate change? Action that counts. And this year, there was actually some good news. They didn't finalize a plan, but leaders from the world's most powerful countries did agree. It's time to transition away from the root cause of our changing climate, fossil fuels. Once we didn't fully turn the page on the fossil fuel era in Dubai, this is clearly the beginning of the end. UN Climate Chief Simon Steele said there's plenty more work to be done, but it's a step in the right direction. And in the spirit of COP, we're going to be hopeful too. I'm Carlisle Calhoun. And I'm Hallie Parker, and you're listening to Sea Change. Today on Sea Change, we're looking entirely at solutions. Stories about climate change are often overwhelming, and honestly, it can be hard to find the bright spots, but they're there. This year, there's been great reporting about how we can adapt to our changing planet and the people who are pushing our leaders to think differently about our relationship to the natural world. Today, you'll hear about the global push for cities to rip up their concrete and whether a river can sue governments over its right to exist. And if slow progress from your government has you feeling anxious or antsy, we'll hear from a couple experts about how you can start taking steps in your own life to help tackle climate change tomorrow. Because our actions do matter. Hallie takes it from here. First, NPR's John Ruwich takes a look at how a landscape architect in China is trying to rewrite the rules of urban development as the risk of flooding worsens. He wants to make our cities spongier. In the shade of a willow tree, a man named Li Tao and his buddy are having a relaxing afternoon. They toss lines into a slow-moving river and occasionally pull out tiny fish. It's good to have a place like this for people to relax. This place, called Baisha Creek, has come full circle. The bank used to be concrete, but several years ago, work began to restore wetlands here. Rushes now grow in tall stands, and weeds thrive on the shallow bank. It wasn't so different 50 years ago, when the designer of this park, a man named Yu Kongjian, was nearly swept away by the water here. He was 10 years old. And it was a huge flood. But I survive. You know why? Because I grabbed the willows, the weeds, the reeds along the riverbank. Decades of turbocharged development meant that that riverbank and many others in China got paved over in concrete to channel the water away from a growing city. Textbooks said that was the thing to do. But Yu says it hasn't worked. All this industrialized solution has some failure or have some bad side effects. He argues that not only would concrete banks have made it harder for a drowning kid to clamber to safety, flooding has gotten much worse because of so-called gray infrastructure. Almost all of China's medium and large cities are now susceptible to floods, and Yu says 60% of them actually experience flooding every year. 
Heavy rainfall has become more frequent and intense due to human-driven climate change, making matters worse. So Yu has been evangelizing a solution he calls sponge cities. That is, urban landscapes that are purposely designed to absorb more water. In Yu's words, You actually are playing Tai Chi with nature, not uh, boxing with nature. You actually play Tai Chi with nature. It is revolutionary from that point of view, because he's pushing boundaries on what it is that landscape architects do. This is Gareth Doherty. He's an associate professor of landscape architecture at Harvard University, and he says Yu is turning to the natural world for solutions. He's pushing boundaries in terms of the environmental aspects of cleaning water and working with monsoon, working with rain, working with environmental processes rather than against them. When Yu started to pitch the idea over 20 years ago, he says people thought he was trying to undermine China's development. But he lobbied hundreds of officials over the years, and it slowly caught on. One of Yu's early projects was a few miles from where he fell into the river. A flood wall was failing to protect the area from annual inundation. So instead of building the flood wall higher and higher, I removed the concrete wall and terracing the riverbank. He terraced the riverbank, planted natural grass, willows, and reeds, and installed ponds and permeable paths. Sun Zheng An is a groundskeeper at what's now known as Yanweizhou Park in the city of Jinhua. He says earlier this summer, a typhoon hit with heavy rain and winds that toppled trees. But the spongy park worked. The water drained quickly, and there wasn't much pooling. About a decade ago, Chinese leader Xi Jinping endorsed the concept of sponge cities. And now dozens of cities around the country have sponge elements. This nature-based solution is also being deployed elsewhere in the world, too, in places like Auckland, Berlin, and Seattle. Yu has become perhaps China's best-known landscape architect. Some even call him the Frederick Law Olmsted of China, a reference to the man who designed New York's Central Park a century and a half ago and put landscape architecture on the map. In the town of Wangping in suburban Beijing, a barren swath of mud, rocks, and debris stretches alongside a river. Locals say it used to be a wetland park, the kind that's supposed to help manage flooding. But torrential rain led to deadly floods during the summer that wiped it out. A volunteer helping with the cleanup says it was simply no match for the extreme weather. Some experts say this kind of devastation shows the very limitations of the sponge city concept in a changing climate. But Erica Geis, author of a book about water management called Water Always Wins, says that may not be the right conclusion. People see a city in China flood from a heavy rain, and then they say, oh, sponge cities doesn't work. But that's a fundamental misunderstanding of scale. And it's scale, actually, that's the biggest challenge that sponge cities face in China and beyond. It's a growing movement, but it needs to grow a lot faster and a much bigger scale for it to really help reverse the really extreme scale at which we have altered the natural water cycle. Whether it can reach critical mass is an open question. For his part, Yu says he'll continue to lobby officials at home and abroad because many still don't get it. We still trust that concrete can solve the problem. We still trust that technology can solve the problem. And that mentality, Yu says, not the concrete, is the hardest thing to break. John Ruich, NPR News, Beijing.
John's story really stuck with me, partly because who doesn't love the sound of a sponge city? But also, there are just so many parallels with our lives here in New Orleans and really coastal communities across the globe. And I wasn't the only one it hit home with. Jessica Dandridge is a native New Orleanian, and she's been promoting green infrastructure for a long time. She's the executive director of the nonprofit The Water Collaborative. And even though this story was based in China, it resonated with her own work locally. It was very endearing because as a New Orleanian, a lot of the experiences that he had talked about, floodwaters, gray infrastructure, we have the exact same problem in this, right? They have typhoons, we have hurricanes. Clearly, there are cities across this country and across this world that need these solutions. And I'm glad to know that it's gaining momentum. She says that the idea of returning to nature is gaining ground because more people are feeling the effects of climate change in their own lives. The past few years have been a doozy for natural disasters. Just this October, a poll by Pew Research found that 71% of Americans believe the changing climate is hurting people right now, today. That should be on headline news where I remember five years ago it wasn't even half. And so it is very obvious that we're feeling the effects from all levels, flooding, hurricanes and natural disasters, tornadoes and drought. Everybody's lives is impacted now. And the the prospects for quality of life for millennials and GNZ is astoundingly dark and very sad. And that's where the promise of green infrastructure steps in and starts to bring back the light, the hope. The way Jessica describes it, green infrastructure is basically a triple threat. Number one, it helps us adapt to our changing climate by lessening the risk of threats like flooding or extreme heat, like we heard about in China. Number two, it actually makes us healthier and our communities safer to be around more greenery. Then number three, and the reason why it's in this episode, it's actually helping to fix the problem of global warming firsthand. It is absolutely a climate solution. Jessica views green infrastructure as the way of the future, the way to ensure, especially in coastal areas, that we have livable cities. That's on a large scale, like the Wetlands Park in China or marsh building in Louisiana, down to things in your own backyard, like adding a rain barrel or planting a tree. All of this, Jessica says, helps us reconnect with the land. We systematically have to change the way we live with our land and our system. Understanding that we are an ecosystem, that every action has a reaction, every cause has an effect. Understanding that we're part of an ecosystem. Our next segment takes this a step farther. We look at a legal movement arguing that perhaps ecosystems should have rights, just like you and me. And how the courts could be a powerful tool for climate action. That's coming up. Earlier this year, I learned about this growing international movement to give forests and rivers the same legal rights as humans. It's called the Rights of Nature Movement. In the summer, Indigenous leaders set the stage for a new campaign to protect the Mississippi River. Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco reports. The Mississippi River flows lazily today. Overhead on the Centennial Bridge connecting Illinois and Iowa and the Quad Cities, cars are cruising past and sometimes honking at a long line of environmentalists that say the river is alive. The river have rights just like, just like human rights. 
our uh, nature have rights, and it's up to us to preserve these rights. That's Glenda Guster from Davenport, Iowa. She was among the 80 or so people to join the Great Plains Action Society's Walk for River Rights, the centerpiece of a three-day summit for black and indigenous organizers from across the Mississippi River Basin. According to Sakawa Snobis, the founder of the Indigenous Rights Organization, the goal is to build a river-wide coalition to rethink the legal framework they believe imperils life on and in the Mississippi River. The earth is really suffering and rights of nature would basically give personhood to the river and it would allow us to have more power to keep it safe. The idea is that natural entities like rivers, trees, or wildlife have the same rights as humans and thus have legal standing in a court of law. The implications could be far-reaching. Companies could be taken to court for damaging the river or its ecosystems. That's exactly what happened in Tamaqua, a small town in Pennsylvania. Thomas Lindsay is a senior attorney at the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights and drafted the document to get rights for the small borough. It may be a radical concept, or it was 20 years ago, but we're rapidly coming to a place where without this kind of new system of environmental law that we're all kind of done. Ultimately, locals were able to stop sewage sludge from being dumped in Tamaqua using the new ordinance. He adds that before the rights of nature movement made its way to the mainstream, it was born from the cosmologies of indigenous people that recognize the natural world as made up of living beings, not just resources and commodities. In 2008, Lindsay consulted the Equatorian government while it drafted its new constitution, the first in the world to ratify the rights of nature. In 2021, an Equatorian municipality appealed to those constitutional protections to overturn mining permits that they said violated the rights of nature of the endangered Los Cedros rainforest, and they won. The work has spread to other countries and in the U.S. to about over three dozen municipalities at this point. Lance Foster is a member of the Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska and a speaker at the Mississippi River Summit. He says that a couple years ago, the success of rights of nature in South America got his and other tribes thinking, why not us? And we wondered why hasn't the big rivers, the Missouri River and the Mississippi River, have those rights. He says that his tribe and others have created a resolution for the rights of the Missouri River. They hope to use it to fight industrial-scale agriculture and deep mining operations. Two years ago in Minnesota, the White Earth Band of Ojibwe brought a suit against the Enbridge Corporation's Line 3 on behalf of the Manumen, or wild rice, and its right to exist and grow. And just a couple weeks ago, the city of Seattle settled a case with the Sauk-Suyattle Indian tribe over the claim that salmon had the right to spawn, among other rights. Foster says if corporations get legal rights in the U.S., why shouldn't rivers? After all, they were here far before humans. Now, will we take that chance as a society? I'm dubious most days, but we have to keep trying. We have to keep going to the bitter end. States like Idaho, Florida, and Ohio have moved to preemptively ban the possibility that nature or ecosystems can have legal standing. Even so, Foster says the rights of nature isn't as unthinkable as it once was. After all, children, women, black, and indigenous people were once denied rights too. What's stopping the river? In the Quad Cities, I'm Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco. This piece from Juan Pablo got me thinking. The rights of nature movement is obviously about far more than climate change, but I still wondered if this growing legal tool to protect nature could also help us limit global warming. So I called up a guy who's been researching the movement for years. Hello, hello. 
Oliver Houck has been practicing and studying environmental law far longer than I've been alive. He's currently a professor emeritus at Tulane University in New Orleans. He's working on a book about the rights of nature movement. It really is the most astonishing legal principle to arise in the last century. Oliver said this push to basically grant personhood to whole ecosystems started in a few places, but most powerfully in Ecuador. Ecuador had the first indigenous president in Latin America, one who was willing to enshrine indigenous beliefs in the Constitution, as we heard earlier. There are three provisions that say the rights of nature, A, shall be protected, B, shall continue to be protected, and C, nature shall be restored. Fifteen years later, more than 30 countries and tribal nations have adopted similar principles and more than 60 localities in the U.S. So it's fair to say that the rights of nature movement is moving through law. But where does this fit in with climate? Oliver sees big potential, especially in one of those three provisions. As they say, the big value of it is the restoration, the right to be restored. That's where we could make a big difference. My hope is that we can do more with it as law in the United States than we do. Because, like we talked about with Jessica, restoring forests and wetlands and natural spaces draw in carbon, store it. Giving rights to nature can also help prevent the destruction of more of those spaces, a natural climate solution. Scientists even say we could get to at least 30% of all global action needed to stabilize our climate just through protecting nature and restoring some of what's been lost. I think the power of the idea is really its greatest strength. There's an emotional component to this. People just don't want to see nature destroyed. And I think that's what makes rights of nature so powerful. In your heart, you just don't want to lose it. Plus, he says it's not something you have to rely on Congress for which is where things tend to break down. This fight for the rights of nature is happening in the courts. Nothing's going to stop legislatures and nothing's going to stop corporations and elected officials who get their funding and and, and their alliances from this. So only the courts are going to do this. And if the rights of nature movement does succeed, it could help bring us back in balance with our world a way to spark the transformative change we need if we're going to save our planet. Of course, that's not the only way to transform our world. Some of the big shifts climate scientists say we need to see can start with you and me. To learn about this, up next, I talk with two experts about what one person can do to make a difference. I have Kaylee Wells and Candace Dickens-Russell here with me. They co-host KCRW's newest podcast, the Anti-Dread Climate Podcast in Santa Monica, California. It's new. It just started this year, just like Sea Change, which is wonderful. And it's focused on solutions, just like this episode. Kaylee is a climate reporter for KCRW, and Candace is an environmental educator currently serving as the CEO for Friends of the Los Angeles River. She's a boss. (laughs) Thanks for joining us today, both of you. Of course. So happy to be be here. here. 
Um, I wonder if we could just start off by talking about, you know, like I mentioned, your podcast is focused entirely on ways to solve the climate crisis and clearing up confusion for people. Why did you two decide to make a podcast like that? I think part of it started because it I wanted to feel better about climate. Like I was struggling with my own climate anxiety and I found that I felt better when I was focusing on solutions to climate and focusing on stuff that I could do. I love that. And I feel like that goes perfectly into my next question, which is, what do you think the value is of thinking about solutions at an individual level, as well as, you know, these global scales that people are reading about in the headlines? Yeah, I think that's a great question, because there is this prevailing wisdom, something my even my brother said to me when I asked him to listen, like, oh, the corporations need to do something about that, or the government needs to do something about that. It's not important if individuals do things. And that is completely, we explore that. We really do dive into that on the show. And that's actually inaccurate. Yeah, I think that that thing about, well, you know, corporations and governments are the ones who are going to make the change can be really dangerous. Um, and, you know, like I think about it, like we have to move this mountain. There is a mountain that we have to move. And sometimes the bulldozers show up and that's really cool. And we take really big dents out of the mountain. But we also all need to pick up a shovel. And yes, it doesn't feel fair when someone's sitting next to you and twiddling their thumbs and watching you shovel. But at the end of the day, the mountain's got to move. <laughs> Convincing people that picking up a shovel is worth doing is it is sort of the entire point of the podcast. And of course, you know, Candice, you're an environmental educator with plenty of expertise on your own as well. So what are the top tips you've come across that maybe Sea Change listeners can take with them as well? You know, I think the recycling episode, I have gotten more comments from my community, friends and family on that episode than anything else. People heard things they hadn't heard before. They thought about the way that they recycle in a very different way. We also talked about bigger stuff. We had one that was literally one of the top five things you can do. Um, among them were things like voting and collective action, because, you know, you need to vote the people into office that are going to actually do the legislation that you want to see. And then beyond that, it's like, how you eat and how you move around. And what I like about those solutions is like some of the biggest impacts you can have don't cost money. Not buying a plane ticket is not expensive. Not eating beef and instead eating tofu or chickpeas or lentil. Like those are cheaper things that you can be doing. So all of those individual actions alone might just be a drop in the bucket. If I have one fewer burger, I'm not making a big difference in the demand on burgers, but you are starting that conversation. And I think that makes an important point, too, right? Like, people don't have to think of this as all or nothing changes. Some famous quote that I'm going to butcher says something like, it is far more effective to have a million people doing this imperfectly than to have one person doing it perfectly. I want to just hear if each of you personally have hope for the future, even amid all of the things that are happening with our climate. Mm -hmm. You know, we're both optimists. I don't think that surprises anybody. Um, I am a everyday, diehard, solar-powered optimist. I really do think that as environmental educators, um, those of us who do that work, believe that the things that we're teaching will, a little bit of it, will get in there and will make a difference. And, and I don't know that I could get up every day and do what I do if I didn't believe it. And I, I do. You totally stole my phrase, which was going to be exactly what you said of like, I don't think I'd be able to do this job if I didn't think that we had a shot, because that's what I'm sort of conveying all the time. And you know, I'd be lying if I said I didn't feel dreadful sometimes. Um, you know, COP28 just ended. And around this time of year, I always feel like, oh, my God, we have so far to go. And there are so many people and countries who, like, are not 
on board. <laughs> I need to get on board. And so, you know, when I say I think we're going to succeed, I don't mean we're going to limit, you know, the 1.5 degrees Celsius number, the big scary numbers like that. But I mean, like, I do think we're going to be able to mitigate and adapt and survive. And I try and remind myself that while it's scary to be part of the generation that's going to have to do that, it is nothing short of a privilege to be part of the generation that's going to beat it. I mean, how cool is that? Yeah, young people. <laughs> Well, thank you both, Kaylee and Candace, for joining us today on Sea Change. Thanks for having us. Happy to do it.